All right. Well, here we go. Well, today's a good day. Uh, my name is Greg Clark. I'm the lead pastor here, uh, and it really is uh, our privilege to serve you. We're excited about what God is doing. Um, let you know a little bit about myself. Uh, I love science fiction. I remember as a kid, I loved reading books on science fiction and, and uh, as much as I could, and, and then you know movies, uh, shows, all kinds of stuff, anything that I get my hands on that has to do with science fiction. I, I love it. Just love it. Um, Star Wars, uh, uh, Star Trek, all the fun stuff. I just, I just love everything to do with sci-fi. One of the things I don't love so much about sci-fi that seems to be kind of a thing in sci-fi is, is time travel. It, it's always really weird. It gets my head confused. I'm not quite sure what's going on. But it seems to be this common thing in science fiction. It, almost always there's something to do with, with, with time travel. And it's interesting when you look at time travel, oftentimes people accidentally find themselves traveling through time. And they're, all, they're, they're always so careful. They're, they're, what's the, do you guys know the biggest thing they warn people about when they're traveling into the past? What, just, what do you guys think? What's the biggest thing they warn people about when they travel into the past? Don't change anything. Exactly. Don't change anything because you have no idea. What, if you change something, you may not exist anymore. Like, don't change the past, because it's going to have an effect on the, the present. To, even to the point where they're like, don't even step on a flower or swat a mosquito, because if you do that, you, all of a sudden everything could change. It could change everything about our present. It's, it's weird that way. But you know, this idea, the, the idea that if you change the past, you might change the present, that, that makes sense to us. We, we understand that. But hardly anyone thinks that they can radically change the future by making a small change in the present. Isn't that interesting? We make a big deal about if you go into the past, don't change anything because it's going to change everything. But we don't often think that if we do something today, that it might actually change the future. It's strange, isn't it? We sometimes think about the big stuff making big changes in our world. But oftentimes, it's small changes that actually make a huge difference in our future. There's a story in the Old Testament about a woman named Ruth. This, the story is in the book of Ruth, which is, it makes sense, right? It's a simple story. It actually starts with Ruth's mother-in-law named Naomi, who's an Israelite woman who's living away from Israel. Naomi and her husband leave Israel because there's a great famine in Israel, and they go to another land to, to be able to raise their family. And while they're away from Israel, uh, Naomi's uh, two children, her two sons, Mary, uh, women from the land that they're in, Moabite women. And in the course of time, Naomi's husband and two sons all die. And Naomi decides to go back to Israel. As she's going back to Israel, one of the daughters-in-law chooses to uh, go back to her home country, stay in her home country, not travel with Naomi. But Naomi's other daughter-in-law, Ruth, chooses to follow Naomi. Naomi tries to discourage her, but here's this famous line that Ruth says. 
Ruth says this. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That's a crazy thing that Ruth does. It's crazy. But it's just, it's just one decision. It's one tiny little decision. It's a, it's a small choice. It's, it has big ramifications, but it's just one little choice. I'm going to choose to stay with you, is what Ruth says. I'm going to choose to stay with you. And that one little choice of Ruth's to, to stay with Naomi changes everything. Enter into the story, enter into the story a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz is a, a close but distant relative to Naomi. Through a series of events, we find out that Boaz is also what's called a kinsman redeemer which means that he can marry Ruth and keep the family land in the family name. Now, land was a big deal for the Israelites. They were a people of the land. They're very similar to our indigenous people here. They're a people of the land. And the reason they were a people of the land for the, for the Israelites, the reason they're a people of the land is because the land connected them to their creator. And so this is a pretty awesome thing. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, is able to keep the land in the family name, which means that Naomi's family line will not disappear from existence. It's wonderful. Boaz is able to redeem the family. Even though the father and the sons were dead, Boaz is able to redeem the family, giving them back all that they were originally meant to have. You see, in the beginning of the whole breaking up of Israel, the beginning of the kind of parceling out of the land, Every family got a space of land, and this was supposed to be their land forever. You couldn't sell it. You, you, could, you could kind of lease it out. You could lease out your land, but after a certain amount of time, the land was supposed to come back to you because the land connected the people to their creator. And so the Israelites, for this kinsman redeemer, the, the kinsman redeemer would come in and be able to, to keep the land in the family name bringing the family back to its original place in relationship to the Creator. This is an obvious foreshadowing of what Jesus did. And while Jesus didn't give us back land, Jesus did redeem us and give us back everything we were originally meant to have. So whereas the Israelites were originally meant to have that land, all of creation was originally meant to have a relationship with their creator, with God. All of us, every single person in this room, every single person in this world is meant to have a relationship with our God. And Jesus does that. He redeems that relationship with our creator. Well, in the story of Ruth, Boaz is this kinsman redeemer, and he acts this way. He, he redeems Naomi's family. Boaz shows kindness to Ruth. He notices her. Ruth is there. She's trying to, to do something to get food for herself and Naomi, and she goes to a field that's being harvested, and she follows around the harvester, and she, the, the, way that, the way that in the Old Testament or in the Israelite world, the way that they supported the poor is the poor could come and they'd glean 
the excess that, or the glean the leftovers. So they'd follow around the harvester and whatever wasn't picked up by the harvester on the first run, the poor people can come by and pick up and they could glean whatever grain was there to, to feed themselves. Boaz notices Naomi going behind the harvester, gleaning these excess things or these things that were left behind. And he tells his harvesters, leave a little more than you normally would. Do a poor job at harvesting so that there's lots left behind for this person that's following behind you. Boaz looks after Ruth. He, he cares for her. He shows kindness towards her. He didn't have to, but he shows kindness to her, even though Ruth is an outsider. See, I told you earlier that Naomi, Naomi's sons uh, married Moabite women. Ruth was a Moabitess, and the Moabites were despised by the Israelites. They weren't just another people. They were a people that were hated. And so here's Ruth, this Moabite woman, who's being shown kindness by an Israelite. Now, Boaz didn't need to do that. He could have been ruthless to her, and it would have been accepted. But he was kind. Boaz made a little choice. A little choice, just to be kind. Just to be kind and caring. No big deal. Just be nice. And that ni niceness led to another little choice to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. See, he had a choice to do that. See, the interesting thing about the kinsman redeemer is if someone played this role, it meant that Boaz was going to put aside his own name. He was going to marry this woman. She was going to retain the name of the original family line. And her kids would retain, retain the name of the original family line, not Boaz's name. So the land and the, the inheritance and the progeny and everything that would come from Ruth and Boaz would be in Naomi's name, in that line, not in Boaz's. So it was a big deal what Boaz did here, and he chose to be a kinsman redeemer. And it seems like a small choice, and it seems like a big choice, and it just seems like a choice that he's going to marry Ruth and be a kinsman redeemer. And they, they have a little family together. It's all very redemptive, and it's all very wonderful and great. And if that was the whole story, if that's all that there was, it'd still be a really great story, right? We'd read that story and say, oh, that's very cool. That's very neat. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, foreshadows Jesus and what he does for us. It's so very wonderful. But that's not the whole story. See, when you hear this story, I think we should ask the question, what's up with Boaz? Why would Boaz do something like this? Why would he be kind in the first place to a person like Ruth? Why would he set aside his own inheritance to build up Ruth's inheritance? What's going on with Boaz? Well, there's another story in the Old Testament which happened a little bit before this Ruth and Boaz one. It's the story of the Israelites coming into the promised land. So this is when they first came into this promised land, the land of Israel. Before it was Israel, they crossed over the river and they go into this land and they, they kind of subdue it. They kind of take ownership over it. God gives them the promised land. It's a really long story. We're not going to tell the whole story today. But today, what I want to focus in on is after God saves the Israelites from Egypt, God brings the Israelites into the promised land. But there was a problem. There was a problem. 
You, you likely, if you know the story, you know the first problem they came up against. To get into the promised land, the Israelites had to first go through Jericho. This giant walled city that was impenetrable. It had no weaknesses. It was this huge, difficult, hard, scary city. So the Israelites, they're like, well, let's send a couple of spies into Jericho to kind of look and see what's going on with Jericho and see if there's any way that we could possibly overtake this city. Well, the king of Jericho finds out that there's spies in their midst. And so he begins to look for them, find the spies. All the guards in the whole city look for the spies that have come into Jericho. Enter into our story a woman of the night named Rahab. Rahab makes a a little choice. It's kind of a little choice, sort of a heavy choice. It's got huge ramifications, but it's a little choice, just one choice to hide the spies. She just, the spies go up on top of her roof. She throws some straw over top of them, and she just hides the spies. That's all she does. And the spies promise, give a promise to her. They they promise Rahab they're going to treat her kindly when the Lord eventually gives them the land. Now, this is a crazy promise because, I mean, how in the world are the Israelites going to ever overcome Jericho? But Rahab makes the choice that she's going to hide the spies. Well, all this does happen. If you read the story later, you can find out Jericho falls, the the city is taken, the land is taken, and the Israelites move in to occupy the land. And Rahab is saved. Rahab and her whole family. The the spies are true to their word. They take Rahab in. She she becomes one of them. They they follow her. Sorry, she follows them. She does a very similar thing that Ruth does. She becomes an Israelite. She becomes part of the crew. Now, Rahab's story comes up again later in the Bible. It's very neat. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, do you guys know that in the book of Hebrews, there's one chapter, and in this one chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about all the amazing people that have existed before the, the, before book, the book of Hebrews is written. It's about this hall of faith. We call chapter 11 of Hebrews the hall of faith. And it has amazing people in it. It talks about Moses and and Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and all these amazing people. And right in the middle of this chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, we read this. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Just one sentence, one verse in the Bible, but we don't show up in the Bible. Rahab does. Isn't that cool? This Old Testament woman, Rahab, who just makes this little choice, shows up in the book of Hebrews. And also in the book of James. James is an amazing book. James is a book that talks about if you want to have faith, real faith, it will be seen. You need to act out your faith. And has, as an example of this act of faith, James uses Rahab. James 2.25, he says, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave, up, gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Isn't that awesome? Rahab shows up in two places in the New Testament. And if that was all there was to this story, that would, that would also be very cool. This neat story about Rahab helping the Israelites to to conquer Jericho and, and to see Rahab show up in the New Testament as this amazing woman of faith. 
Rahab gets a little citation. She gets a little award. She's remembered. A woman who was not an Israelite, who was not in a great line of work, ends up in the hall of faith next to these amazing people. And Rahab the foreigner is used as an example of active faith, all because she made a little choice to save some Israelites. I mean, that's pretty awesome. And if that was all there was to that story, that'd still be just awesome. But that's not all. You see, Rahab, who comes into this crew along with the Israelites, ends up marrying an Israelite and having some kids, which is what people do sometimes. They move to a little town called Bethlehem. Rahab's son, Boaz, is kind to a foreign woman named Ruth. If you didn't hear all this, I'm going to say it again. Rahab ends up marrying an Israelite and having some kiddos. They move to a little town called Bethlehem. Rahab's son, Boaz, is kind to a foreign woman named Ruth, probably because he knows what it's like to have a mom who was a foreigner who'd been redeemed. And here's Ruth, a foreigner who's being redeemed. Now, if that was all there was to this story, that would be very cool, right? Rahab, who's not an Israelite, ends up coming into the group of Israelites, marrying an Israelite, having a son named Boaz. Ruth, who's from a far-off land, comes back and lives in Bethlehem. And Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who marries her. If that was all there was to the story, it'd be this great story of redemption, and we'd all go, wow, that's so cool. But you guys are probably catching on by now. That's not all there is to this story. Boaz and Ruth have a kid named Obed, who has a kid named Jesse, who has a bunch of kids, the youngest one of which is named David. Yep, that David, King David, the one who's the greatest king over all of Israel. David's great, great, I don't know how far back, great, 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 couple of greats, grandmother was Ruth, whose mother-in-law was Rahab. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. And it's cool. And it's this wonderful story of, of, of redemption and, and God weaving this masterful picture together for us. And if that was all there was, that'd be cool. But you guys know there's more. There's a genealogy in the Bible in the book of Matthew. It's a special genealogy, but don't get too far ahead of me, okay? So, in Matthew chapter 1, here's this genealogy. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, you got this so far. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, you guys already know this. We just talked about this, right? This cool story of all these amazing people being in the lineage of David. It's a cool thing. There's nothing extra in this passage so far, but let's keep reading. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, (laughs) this is a whole different story about Uriah's wife being David's wife and all that kind of stuff. We're not talking about it today, but it's crazy also. We'll just keep on going with this story. Okay, so 
Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Now we're going to skip down a little bit because this genealogy is long, right? So we're only like a third of the way through it. So we're going to skip kind of the second third of this genealogy. You can read it later in Matthew chapter 1. But here's how the genealogy continues as it's like the son of 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 all the way down until we get to verse 16 and then we read this. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called Christ. Now isn't that something? The foreign, sketchy Rahab makes a little choice to save a couple of scruffy guys and becomes an Israelite. The foreigner Ruth makes a little choice to follow her mother-in-law back to their little town of Bethlehem and finds a new husband. The half-breed Boaz makes a little choice to be kind and finds a new wife. And little choices after little choices after little choices cascade down the line until all these strange characters join a bunch of other strange characters and find themselves in the genealogy of Jesus. In Jesus' genealogy. Isn't that crazy? We often get stuck on the idea that it's the big things that make a difference. And often, I don't know about you, but I don't normally have time for the big things. Pharaoh sometimes will have a, a honeydew list, right? Honeydew this, honeydew that. Not very often. I have to kind of ask her for a honeydew list. But when I get a list from her, sometimes it's things like, you've got to fix the shed. And I'm like, I know, that's like a five-day job. It's going to cost this much money. And I just, I don't have time for that. I don't have five days anywhere to figure out how I'm going to fix the shed. I don't have the money to fix that. There's no way. It's a big deal. And then she's got other things. Would you... Would you would you take the trash out? And I'm like, I got time for that. That's not a problem. I'll take the trash out all day long. No problem. We often think it's the big things that make the biggest differences, but nobody's got time for the big things. What I found is it's actually more likely to be the little things that make a difference. And I think maybe part of the reason why it's the little things that make a difference is because we all, we're all willing to do the little things. We're all, really, we're all willing to do the five-minute job or the 10-minute job or to get something done really quickly. And it's often a bunch of these little things that all add up to sometimes being a big thing. There's thousands of little things every day that we do, choices that we make, and I think it's often the little things that make the biggest difference in our world. What if a couple of those little things that you were going to do today were God's things, things that God put onto your heart? Call so-and-so and talk to him. Send a text off to your friend. Show up for coffee at a friend's house. Do something little. Pay attention to the person that's on the side of the road. Do something little and see what God will do with that. You know, I've heard people say, I want to do big things for God. And that's great. Keep on doing big things for God. That's wonderful. But I want to encourage you to do little things for God. See how many little things in a day that you could do for God. Maybe it's just stopping for a moment and praying for a friend. How many little things could you do in a day for God? Last weekend, as uh, Dave Penner noted, we had our Everyone Everywhere conference where we talked about sharing the good news of Jesus with our friends and family. And we learned to pray a prayer, a simple little prayer that takes about a minute to pray. 
The prayer is just this. Jesus, who do you want me to share your good news with? And Jesus, how do you want me to do that? It's the who and how prayer. I just read it off to you in about five seconds. It's a brief little thing to take a minute in your day to pray, Jesus, who do you want me to share your love with? Jesus, how do you want me to do that? And it's not supposed to be like getting up on a street corner and, and spending 10 hours there, you know, proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's not meant to be giant, huge, crazy things. It's meant to be little things, like helping your neighbor shovel their driveway or sending a letter or a text to a friend or visiting someone for coffee. It's supposed to be little things. I think that one of the greatest things that Jesus taught us about loving others is that it is incredibly accessible to everyone, and it's the little things. There's this verse in the Bible that's couched in a much bigger story that we're not going to talk about today, but we're going to kind of focus in on just a little verse here. And it's this verse in Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking uh, to people, and he, he just says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now here, Jesus is, there's a much bigger conversation going on, and you can read it later in Matthew 25. But Jesus is saying, when you did these things for people, when you did these things for people who needed it done for them, it was like you were doing it for me. But do you see how accessible these things are? It would be, it would be perfectly okay for Jesus to say, when you spent a billion dollars in my name, you did it for me. When you built a hundred houses for the poor, you did it for me. When you walked a thousand miles, you did it for me. It would be perfectly fine for Jesus to say something like that, but he doesn't. He makes it incredibly accessible. And he says things like, when you fed someone that was hungry, you did it for me. When you gave a drink to a thirsty person, you did it to me. When you welcomed strangers, you did it for me. When you clothed the naked, when you looked after the sick, when you visited the captive, you did that for me. The little things. The, the thing that, so after church today, before you get lunch, you would easily be able to do like three or four of these things. It's the little things, the little things that make such a difference. Jesus says it's the little things that make such a difference. I was away this week uh, down in Red Deer. Um, I was in Red Deer from Sunday to Wednesday night. I serve our denomination uh, in the Alberta district. So we have many districts across um, Canada, and we have an Alberta district. I have about 100 and... I don't know, 150 churches or something like that, Alliance churches within this district. I serve on the, the DEXCOM, which is the District Executive Committee, which is kind of like an elders board for the district. We took an afternoon to split up to, to go and meet. Uh, we just kind of went in groups of three around to the small little rural, rural churches around Red Deer, places like Mirror, um, Stetler, Innisfail, Linden, Rimby. And I got to go to the Little Mirror Alliance Church, where about 50, 40 to 50 people meet on a Sunday, on a good Sunday. 
Um, they're in a small little town of just 500 people in, in Muir, Alberta. And I got to meet Pastor Dan and Ann Geddert, faithfully serving this little church, doing little things to love their community. They've got a, a games day on Saturday. They invite the community out for games. They have a meal and a Bible study on Tuesdays. They have all kinds of fun stuff happening at the church. And they, it's, a, it's a neat thing. When we were there, <laughs> it was a Monday, and Monday is normally um, Pastor Dan's day off, which I think a lot of pastors take Monday off. Uh, but as we showed up, he pulled up, and, uh, and he ran outside with this little sign that he stuck in the snow. It looked like one of those little, um, you know, vote for so-and-so signs, and he stuck it in the snow, and it just said, the pastor is in. <laughs> and he said he has to put that sign out there because he often walks, because he's like two blocks from the church, he often walks to the church, and if there's no vehicles there, people will just drive by. But if he puts the sign in there, people will know they could stop in for prayer or for encouragement or whatever. This, this guy just serving this community faithfully. And he's just loving the community of Mirror. And he's just doing a bunch of little things to care for the people and love them and show them the love of Jesus. We showed up there. We listened to his story. We, we uh, had some fantastic, there was like some Mennonite dessert. I don't know what it is. It was like layered, like, like it was just Wonderful. I can't even describe what it is, but it's fantastic. That was really good. What is it? Plots? Probably plots. I don't know. It was good. It was good. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Pie by the yard. Yep. It was really good. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was fantastic. So we had this little dessert. We listened to their story. We prayed together. And when we left, they were just like, like walking on cloud nine. It was just like they were just, they were just so encouraged. It took one hour out of our time to go by there and encourage them. And they took one hour of their time to encourage us. When we left there, we drove away. We were like, wasn't that beautiful? We felt so encouraged hearing their story. One hour. Just a little thing. We also took time this week at Dexcom to look at our culture. What's happening in Canada? What's happening in the world? What's happening as the culture of this world interacts with the church? What's going on? What do we need to be aware of? What's happening? We have some really smart people down at the district office, and they came up with this thing called the trend tracker, stuff that's happening in our world that's affecting the way that the church lives and works and breathes and shares the gospel, and ways the church can interact with culture to better share the good news of Jesus. It's this wonderful thing. The trend tracker is designed to assist the church in Canada to better recognize the times that we're in, and begin to discern how we might respond in partnership with the Holy Spirit's leading. Some of the things the trend tracker talks about are economics, politics, artificial intelligence. It's really cool. Karl Barth, who's a famous theologian, was reported to have said, preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Know what's happening in your culture so that you can intersect culture with the gospel. I'm pretty excited about the trend tracker. Uh, trend tracker. Actually, after Easter, there's nine things that came out of the trend tracker that we're going to go through as a church on nine Sundays in a row. We're going to talk about different things. Like the first one's going to be on the artificial intelligence. What's happening in the world of artificial intelligence? How can the church interact this cultural thing that's happening with the good news of Jesus Christ? 
It's amazing how much the church can be powerful in our culture today just by bringing simple little things. It's not giant things. How can we bring the hope, the love, the peace, the joy of Jesus into relevant cultural conversations? Not huge things. Little acts of the goodness of God. We're also in the season of Lent right now. Lent's the 40 days that, that precedes Easter. It's a traditional celebration. What people normally do during Lent is they give up things. They, they long to kind of prepare themselves for what's about to happen. The crucifixion of Jesus is, is both a, a fantastic thing for us because by Christ's death, we are saved. By his death and resurrection, we're saved. So it's a fantastic thing. But it's also a very um, somber moment. And so people use Lent to prepare themselves for this somber moment of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And while Lent is one of the traditions kind of of the the bigger church, our church doesn't really spend a lot of time celebrating it, um, but I do like the practice of reflection and preparation. And in this season of Lent, um, while we usually give give stuff up like we give up coffee or we give up sugar or we give up social media, you know, all the stuff that makes the world go round. We give up some of that stuff. This year, I want to challenge you, instead of giving something up, you may already be doing this because we're into the season of Lent. We're about halfway through Lent already. Um, You may already be giving something up, but I want to encourage you, instead of giving something up, would you take something up? Instead of giving something up, would you take something up? In these next 14 days, so from now until Easter, would you take up a little thing? Here's what I'd like you to take up. This is a little bit of a spin-off from our Everyone Everywhere conference. Would you do this who and how prayer? Is that something you would take up over these next 14 days? That every day you would pray who and how? Jesus, who do you want me to show your love to? And Jesus, how do you want me to show them your love? It doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not. They can be your friend, family member, a total stranger. But be praying this prayer through these next 14 days of Lent. Put, a, put an alarm on your phone. Put a post-it note and put it on your bathroom mirror. Whatever it would take to help you remember to pray who and how. Jesus, who do you want me to share your love with? And how do you want me to do it? Would you like me to buy him a donut? Drop by for coffee? Send him an encouraging word by text or phone call? Whatever it is. Jesus, how do you want to sh- how, how, who do you want me to show your love to? How do you want me to do it? Would you, would you commit to doing that over the next 14 days? You know, I have this thought that maybe if we start to take little moments and see what God wants us to do in these little moments, I have this thought that maybe all kinds of things would change. It's such an easy thing to do. We're going to do it right now. So I just want you to to pause for a moment. We're going to take 10 seconds to pray the first part of this prayer. So just pause for a moment. If you want to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. If you want to keep them open, it's fine too. But we're we're going to speak to Jesus. So we're going to take 10 seconds to pray this prayer. I'm going to pray it out loud. You can pray it in your head. Here we go. Jesus, who is it that you would put on my heart right now 
to show your love to. So just take a moment, five seconds to listen. Who? And Jesus, how would you like me to show your love to them? Jesus, how? Just take a minute right now. Just take five seconds to just think and listen. So I hope somebody came to mind. Hope you got a name or a face or a person. I hope you got a strategy, some way that you can show the love of Jesus to them. I hope you got that. If you didn't get that now, take another time after church today, before lunch. Stop. If you're a processor, you need more time, if you need like a whole minute to do this, take a minute to do it and ask who and how. I wonder what will happen in our future if we begin to make little choices right now in our present. Bruce, I'm going to invite you to come back up here. Would you guys to stand with me? We're going to close off in a song here, and then I'll jump up and give a benediction. So just as we close off, um, I want to make sure to give an opportunity. If there's anyone here or watching online where you've not yet uh, given your life to Christ, where you've not yet experienced the new life that He has for you, You've not yet asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior, to be your kinsman redeemer, to bring you back into relationship with God. I want to give you opportunity to do that today. And this, I remember when I became a Christian, it felt like such a um, big thing, but also such a small thing. I had no idea. At 16 years old, I had no idea what it would look like now 30 years later. I was just a kid in Florida. And this, <laughs> this is not the normal pattern. God doesn't bring you to the frozen tundra of the north always when you become a Christian, but maybe he'll do the reverse for you. You want to go to Florida? That's great. Anyhow, sorry. <clears throat> I'm getting distracted. We have no idea what that little choice to turn and follow Jesus will do in our life. We don't always know how much of a change it's going to make. I'm going to give you an opportunity today it's not a magic prayer or anything like that. It's just a position of the heart to say, Jesus, I want you to come and live in my life, and I want to give my life to you. I want to be yours, and I want to be redeemed and set free and saved and all the big words, but I want you, Jesus. It's just a simple prayer. I want you, Jesus. I want you, Jesus. And so if you've not yet today Ask Jesus to come into your life or give in your life to Jesus. You can just pray, Jesus, I want you. I want you, Jesus. And turn your heart to him and become a child of God. So if you want to do that today, it's simple. You can just do that by just praying that prayer. Jesus, I want you, Jesus. Come into my life. Come into my life. If you want to talk more about that, we're going to have a couple of people up here that love to pray with you and encourage you. There's also going to be people who will be up here if you want to come forward for a prayer for healing or just for a word of encouragement. We're going to be up here for you. We'd love to do that for you. So let me close off our time with a, with a prayer for you. As you look at this week, the challenge today and for the next 14 days is every day if you can, several times a day if you can, to pray who and how. 
Jesus, who do you want me to, to show your love to? And Jesus, how do you want me to do it? So let me just pray for you. Jesus, this is your church. Jesus, these are your people. So I just pray right now, Lord, that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit, that you would move powerfully in them, for them, and through them, and that as they pray that prayer this week and the next two weeks, that you'd speak to them. You'd bring people to mind. You'd bring strategies to mind. That you would move powerfully in these little things that are done in your name, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would lead us and guide us. And, Lord, that the little things will will add up. Little things and little things and little things will add up and cascade into some amazing changes for the future. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your plan and the things that you're doing in our world. And we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. We've got a couple people that are going to come up for prayer. Come on up for prayer. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.